0: Are you interested in a true crime podcast with a different point of view, with hosts who have seen the justice system from the inside? Then you should check out Alice and Brett and their show, The Prosecutors. In every episode, Alice and Brett bring a unique perspective as full-time prosecutors to the most famous and debated true crime mysteries. Whether it's John JonBenet Ramsey, Maura Murray, Scott Peterson, or the Delphi murders, they dig deep to bring you the details that you won't hear anywhere else. The Prosecutor's Podcast is about more than just storytelling.
1: Alex and Brett will walk you through the legal problems lurking behind every case. They break down the complexities of the criminal justice system with a little bit of humor and personal touch. And it's not just true crime. They bring the same training and approach that they've learned as prosecutors to classic mysteries like the Dieltov Pass incident and the ghost ship Marie Celeste. So if you're looking for a true crime podcast with a different point of view, a different approach, The Prosecutors is the podcast for you. I listen to this one myself, highly recommend. Brit and Alice are great. You can find The Prosecutors wherever you find your favorite podcasts. It's that time again, everybody. True Crime Cast, going
0: to bring you another case.
1: Jamie here with John. What's up, man?
0: Hey, Jamie, buddy. I'm glad to be back in the room with you tonight. We got an interesting case to talk about. Uh, a good follow up from last week. I think the two really go hand in hand.
1: Yeah, I think so too. If you all would, after today's episode, if you enjoy what you hear, or even if you don't, we would love to hear from you via a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also contact us on social media at True Crime Cast.
0: Guys, our Patreon is still pretty lonely over there. Every few days I check on it, and it's it just needs some loving. So if you don't mind, please drop by our Patreon account. Check it out. We have awesome reward levels for you to choose from. Uh, the most basic package that you get is only $3, and for $3 a month, you'll get access to extra content that we have out there. We're going to do some interesting stuff. I know the Adnan Saad case is something a lot of people are interested in, so we have some bonus material on that. We're also going to talk a little bit more about Jack the Ripper and all kinds of extra stuff planned, so please check out our Patreon account. Jamie, our listeners still just have a couple more weeks to check out our HBO special that we have going right now. For a limited time only, you have access to one free week of HBO on Amazon Prime. You can access that through our show notes. There's a link in there. We also have a link on our Twitter and Facebook pages. So please check out that HBO deal. It's an awesome opportunity. You can try it free for a week, and if you don't love it, you can cancel it. Jamie, you have been researching the heck out of this case this week. I'm really excited to bring it to our audience. So, buddy, you have the honor. Please get us rolling tonight.
1: You know, John, I talked to two different people this week that I shared this case with, and both of them looked at me and said, ooh, that's my favorite. So I'm hoping that we can provide you with information you're looking for. This is probably at least a person that you've heard of. Tonight, we're going to talk about H.H. Holmes. H.H. H. Holmes was actually born Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmantown, New Hampshire in 1861. His parents were Levi and Theodel. He had two sisters and a brother. He was the third born in the family. He actually was a really good student early, John. He graduated high school at 16 and actually started teaching in his area There are a lot of rumors out there about his upbringing. Some people say, like we hear from a lot of typical serial killers, that he was abused as a child or his father was an alcoholic or that he used to abuse animals. But none of that's really been substantiated. As far as we know, he had a fairly normal childhood. He started teaching when he was 16. He got married to a lady named Clara Lovering, and they had a son named Robert born in 1880 in Loudon, New Hampshire. Robert actually went on to be the city manager in the city of Orlando and was a successful businessman of his own right. In 1884, Herman Mudgett decided he wanted to go to medical school, so he moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, to the University of Michigan, and joined the Department of Medicine and Surgery to help pay for school. He actually worked in the anatomy lab there, and he worked with a lot of researchers that focused on dissection.
0: Jamie, in research in this case, I remember hearing that his parents actually took him to the doctor when he was really little, and that looks much different than it does today for us, right? Like, we go in, it's this nice, sterile environment, everything's well lit, but what I heard in my research on another podcast was that his parents took him there, and he got to see skeletons and, and all kinds of just creepy things in the doctor's office, and that's kind of what inspired him to go into the medical school at a later age. Some of his first crimes as an adult are insurance fraud schemes where he would actually take out life insurance policies on people and then find a cadaver through medical school and use that body as the body of the alleged person he took the claim out for in order to get insurance money. Now, we're talking about 1880s, 1890s, so this was a much easier thing to do back then than it would be now, of course. There's a lot more documentation on people, a lot more uh, records that, that are kept digitally. So this was probably a pretty hard thing to pull off, but much easier than it would be nowadays. Jamie, we also have reports of him being violent towards his first wife, Clara. Um, some of his classmates reported that he was, he treated her pretty rough. Jamie, the, the treatment there was so rough, it's reported that she actually left him in 1884 and moved back to New Hampshire.
1: And if I'm right, John, he never really reconciled with her after that point.
0: No, in fact, Jamie, I think he's going to go on to get married at least two more times, right?
1: Uh, yeah. It's going to be an adventure, guys. Buckle in.
0: <laughs> after he graduated, he moves to Morris Fork, New York. Then he moves to Philadelphia. He worked at Norristown State Hospital, but only for a few days, Jamie. He practiced medicine for less than a year, and then he worked for a pharmacy. Last week, we talked about Jack the Ripper, and it was interesting. We thought that this person who was committing these crimes over in England must have had some area of knowledge in the medical field because of his precise cuts that he would make on the body and the removal of some organs. So I think it's just kind of funny, might not be the best word, ironic perhaps, that we're now talking about another serial killer from the 1800s. in America who has knowledge in the medical field.
1: So like you said, he worked at a pharmacy for a while, and after that he moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. As John alluded to a little bit earlier, he actually got married again when he got there, even though he had not been divorced from Clara. He did later file for divorce, but there's really no paperwork showing that that was ever submitted. So while he was still married to Clara Levering, he got married to Myrta Belknap. They had a daughter named Lucy, and they lived in Minneapolis while he continued to work as a pharmacist for a little bit, and then he moved to a suburb of Chicago in 1886. He actually lived in Wilmette, Illinois, and that's where most of our story takes place, when he was living and working in the Chicago area. And that's also when he started going by H.H. Holmes. Throughout his life, he went by what is... Really countless aliases, John. He had so many names that he went by. Sometimes that was just to establish himself in a new way, but most of the time that was just to create another identity for a con job. You mentioned the cadavers, and that's what we're going to find out, is that at the root of his crimes, he was a con man. He got a job at a drugstore in the Inglewood community. It was owned by Dr. Elizabeth Holton, and he worked as a pharmacist there for a few years before... He eventually bought the business himself and began to run it. And after he had worked there for a little while and he had owned it and made some money, he decided to open a new construction. So there was an open lot across the street from this pharmacy. And in 1887, he purchased the lot and started construction on what was then a two-story building. Now, John, this is the beginning of what most people know as the murder castle. Later reports would say that It had a maze. It said, John, that there were greased chutes from the top floor to the basement. He could just throw a dead body, and it would go straight down to the basement. Some people also speculated that he would actually hang people that way, put them in the grease
0: chute with a noose around their neck. I heard in my research that he would tie a noose around their neck, throw them down the chute, and let them hang there so that he could go down to the basement and dissect their bodies while they were still hanging from the chute.
1: That does sound convenient. Really, the first map of this crazy layout for a murder castle came out in a newspaper that was called The New York World. And that was, John has kind of been described as a combination between the New York Times and the Inquirer. Like there's some real research done, but most of it is just kind of trash. So this was kind of a combination of that. But on that map, they had, like we said, there was a maze involved. There were greased chutes, there were gas chambers, there were dissection rooms, there were lime pits, which is a way to dispose of bodies, whether they're human or otherwise. There were rooms for acid baths, there were supposed to be furnaces where he cremated people. There were secret stairwells and back passages with hidden doors. This was supposed to be a place that was designed to trap, torture, and kill people. And he started that in 1887 across the street from the pharmacy that he owned. This is also a further example of how shady of a businessman he was. It's said that he used several different aliases to hire construction companies, the steel companies, to come in and construct this building. But when it came time to pay on those loans, he never paid up. But Because he had used so many other identities, he was actually able to still acquire the building without paying for the construction of it to be done. So he conned his way into owning this building. The first floor was for businesses. He actually opened a new drugstore there that he owned and worked in sometimes. And the second floor was apartments where people stayed for the long term. Now, when I mentioned Murder Castle, most people also recall that this was supposed to be a hotel. And that really came about in 1892, the World's Fair was actually really close to this building in Chicago. He borrowed $3,000 from one of the apartment tenants on the second floor to construct the third floor, and he was supposed to use that as a hotel to make money during the World's Fair so people could come. But most people really just believed that was a trap for more murder. He was supposed to get all these world travelers there for the fair, invite them into his hotel, and then they would be in his elaborate maze of death So that he could kill as
0: many people as he wanted to. So, Jamie, he's built this huge castle slash hotel slash death trap. And it's a perfect, convenient time for him because there's so many people coming around from all over the world to this World's Fair. So, I mean, he really has just free reign on the city as far as what he wants to do in, in this castle, right? So let's go through some of the victims that we know about. Now Jamie, I will say that through our research we have found that researchers are very greatly on the number of victims that we see. Most experts in this field will say that he had at least five or six victims. I've I've read crazy numbers like up into the thousands, but for right now let's just go through the victims that we know about that are for sure HH H. Holmes victims. The first one is Julia Connor. Now Julia Connor became a victim after her husband was hired to work for H.H. H. Holmes back in 1890. Uh, her husband's name was Ned. Jamie, do you know what he was hired to do for H.H. H. Holmes?
1: He was hired to help run the business. He was a money cruncher for him. So he helped with the operations side of not only managing the pharmacy, but the businesses within the building and the apartments as well.
0: It said that H.H. H. Holmes was kind of a dapper-looking guy in the time. Now, I've heard some funny things on other podcasts, and I don't want to just completely rip them off. But 1890 was a good time to be a good-looking dude because they, you didn't really have much competition, is basically what I heard. But they said he's a dapper-looking guy. So we see that Ned's wife, Julia, actually had an affair with H.H. H. Holmes. Now, this prompted Ned to then leave town. He didn't want to be a part of that situation. That's when things took an interesting turn. It's reported that H.H. Holmes took out an insurance policy on Julia and then her daughter, Pearl. Jamie, that's always major red flags, right?
1: Yeah. Nowadays, if you saw that, that's an obvious red flag. I wonder what people thought of that back then. I wonder if, oh, well, he's trying to take care of me by taking out this insurance policy. When he writes himself or one of his fake names
0: as the beneficiary. I think the most disturbing part of that is that he also bought a policy for Pearl, which makes me think that he knows something's going to happen to her as well. Now, Julia disappeared in 1891. Holmes claimed that they moved to Michigan and just left town kind of out of sight, out of mind situation. It's really unclear though, Jamie, whether or not he cashed in those policies, but After the disappearance, much later, he claimed that he actually killed Julia during a botched abortion. So he was doing this backroom abortion on Julia, and this would be a convenient time for her to get murdered, but to make it appear as though it was a medical procedure gone wrong. Jamie, there's also some speculation to say that he poisoned Pearl. Do you know any more about that?
1: Yeah, they found some bones in the basement later on, and due to the size of them, Pearl was a toddler at the time. Many speculate that it was Pearl's. And then it just goes around to what you believe actually happened in the murder castle. Some think he may have gassed her. Others think he may have poisoned her. But there's not a lot out there that thinks that he violently killed her with his hands or anything like that. And as far as the botched abortion goes, there are a lot of stories of that, of people that he claimed died his hands because of that. And I don't know if that's just a scapegoat for him to say he was helping or if that's just a way that he found it easy to get them to be vulnerable to where he could also make an excuse and still capitalize on the insurance claim.
0: Jamie, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, it was a way to get the claims and get the money from it for his business, but at the same time have a pretty decent story to tell the community as to why these people were dying. Absolutely.
1: Going to the next victim is just a year later. We find a lady named Emmeline Sagrand. H.H. Holmes actually heard about her because she was very pretty. She was known for her beauty. His friend Ben Peitzel, who really was kind of a henchman for him. I don't know that I would say hitman. I don't think he hired other people to go out and kill people. But he did have a lot of guys that worked for him that helped him with his con jobs in addition to helping him with his building. And Ben was one of those guys. They seemed to be friends. And he told H.H. Holmes about this lady named Emmeline Sagrand. So H.H. Holmes reached out to her and offered her a job to move to Chicago and to work for him. He actually proposed to Emmeline, and they claimed to several people that they were married, although there's no documentation that ever actually happened. Keep in mind... He's still married to Myrta during parts of this. What's a little bit different about uh, the murder of Emmeline to Grand John is that we don't know of any financial gain. We don't have records of any types of insurance policies taken out for her in the name of any of his known aliases or in his name. But maybe it's just that she knew too much. He seemed to be pretty infatuated with her, so it's likely that He got very close to her and let her know about a lot of his con jobs. This was another one that he claimed that she died during an abortion that had gone wrong. And that may have legitimately happened. Maybe he'd gotten her pregnant and he decided to take care of that on his own. But maybe he was just trying to silence her. Maybe she was trying to hurt his business in some way. But that makes it interesting that that's the only one that we know of, that there was no financial motive. And as you can tell already, H.H. Holmes very quickly moves on from wife to wife, or lover to lover, and it didn't take him a long time to get over Emmeline Tigrand. There There's actually a former actress that moved to Chicago in 1893, just a year after he had met Emmeline Segrand. Her name was Minnie Williams, and again, he offered her a job at the hotel. I think she was a stenographer. One thing that he did with Minnie is that they did proclaim to everyone that they were married. They were living as a married couple in Chicago, and they had a house together. She had also owned some property in Fort Worth, Texas. And as part of their quote-unquote marriage, Holmes had actually convinced her to transfer the deed of that property into the name of one of his aliases. The name was actually Alexander Bond that he was using. But the deed was transferred into that name, and H.H. H. Holmes, believe it or not, was the notary that signed those documents. So, he got possession of her land in Fort Worth, Texas. At some point later that year in July, Minnie's sister came to visit. Her name was Nanny. And there is a letter written from Nanny to another relative where they talk about going and taking their brother on a trip to Europe. But shortly after that letter was received, Minnie and Nanny both disappeared. Once they disappeared, Holmes actually claimed that Minnie had gotten jealous of Nanny that she was trying to get with H.H. Holmes and that Minnie had killed her sister and he had gotten her out of town to help her hide. Just days after the two ladies had disappeared, there was a loan that was taken out in Minnie's name and it was made payable to her brother who, believe it or not, John, was already dead. None of the bodies we've discussed yet have ever been found, and he probably wouldn't have been convicted of any of these crimes in a court of law because there's really no physical evidence besides we mentioned Pearl's bones, but at that time there was no way to readily identify them. There were other quote-unquote experts that they brought in that said that they may have been sheep bones. I don't know why you bury sheep bones in your basement, but that's just how I was raised. There were also rumors of him selling skeletons— there was a local guy named M.G. Chapel that actually came and testified and said, yes, he would place the bodies in this acid, and he would sell me these skeletons to use in various ways, and I can tell you how he did these things. But it turned out that Chappell was really full of it. None of his claims were substantiated, and there was no evidence that Holmes had actually sold these skeletons.
0: In my research, I remember reading a story about this guy that when investigators went to talk to him, he had actually had a— a skull from a human skeleton hanging in the tree of his backyard that was painted red. Is this the same guy, Jamie? Do you remember reading about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, painted red and he used some of them for decoration, but he also operated some businesses where he used the skeletons and that's why he said he needed them, but he could never produce any specific ones that he said he got from H. H. Holmes.
0: Jamie, in 1894, we see that Holmes left Chicago And he's on his way to Fort Worth from the property that he received from Minnie Williams. And he's now married to Georgina York, who he met in Denver, Colorado. Now, technically, he's still legally married to Clara and Murda at this time. And again, he got the property from Minnie. Jamie, once he got in Fort Worth, there were rumors that he was building another castle, but it never really actually materialized. Do you know any more about that?
1: Yeah, it's said that he actually went down there with Ben Peitzel to kind of settle into Fort Worth. And some people think he went down there and tried to form a new identity as a cowboy. And he wanted to be an outlaw in Texas and that kind of thing. And he had started construction on a building, although it's said that he never actually spent any time down there to develop businesses or whatever. I think it sat vacant until it was acquired by another owner.
0: So after that didn't materialize in Fort Worth, he actually goes back up to St. Louis. Kind of interesting to me, Jamie, how in 1890 you can travel from place to place kind of seemingly easily. Uh, but this was before major transportation. I just find that interesting how often and frequently he moved. It had to be a big deal at the time.
1: We're going to find out he moved in some pretty extraordinary ways a little later, too.
0: Awesome. So we have him in St. Louis and this is where he runs a pretty interesting scheme. He's actually borrowing and getting credit for all kinds of goods like furniture and things like that. Some pretty big ticket items. And he's taking them from these stores on credit with the promise that he's going to pay them back eventually. But what he does is he takes these items and he sells them. And at this point, because he never really intends to pay back for the items Anything he makes is profit for him. So he does this a number of times, and he's actually arrested in St. Louis for selling goods that he still owed on.
1: John, he also did that with horses while he was in Texas. It said that he started borrowing horses on credit and then selling them. Again, he sold stuff really cheap. So you think if you can get a good deal on a horse, you go to whatever H.H. Holmes was calling himself at the time. But also in Texas, as a horse thief in the 1890s, was not something you wanted to be. That'll come back and bite him later, but that was kind of his M.O., to borrow things on credit, sell them for cheap,
0: and never pay the loans back. Yeah, Jamie, in a a few minutes we'll talk about an interesting choice he has to make. Uh, We'll just leave it at you don't sell stolen horses in Texas. Yes. That will get you hung really quickly. So he did get caught this time with this scheme, and he was actually arrested. It's while he's in jail in St. Louis that he meets a train robber named Marion Hedgepath. Now, so Marion is a train robber. It's a very frontier-like thing, and Holmes has to try to one-up him. So Holmes starts telling this guy about his schemes that he used to do, where he would find cadavers and take out life insurance policies and collect money. He actually told Marion that he had another big scheme lined up, where he and another guy named Ben Petzl are going to go to Philadelphia and they're going to carry out this elaborate scheme. So they open up this lab where Ben Petzl is acting as an inventor. He's going to, if you have an invention that you want to bring in, he can help you get a patent for it. And it's during this time, Holmes takes out a $10,000 life insurance policy on Petzel, And they fake this elaborate lab explosion where there's an explosion in the lab. There's a body that's burned beyond recognition and so they, investigators come in, medical examiners come in, and they have to figure out who this body is. So, of course, Holmes is there to identify this as Petzl. And
1: John, actually, the insurance policy was in the name of B.F. Perry, which at the time was an alias of Ben Peitzel. So the explosion allegedly killed B.F. Perry, who was supposed to be a body that they would come up with in some way stolen from a hospital, stolen from a morgue or whatever, and substitute for Ben Peitzel. But when they actually got there to carry out the deed, H.H. Holmes turned on Ben Peitzel and actually
0: killed him, and that was actually his body in the lab. Jamie, I think one of the crazy things about this murder in particular was that Petzl's family was actually in on the scheme. Holmes had told them that the scheme was going to take place and that they would actually be paid for going along with things. I think they had agreed, Holmes had agreed to pay Petzels wife $300 for this scheme. She actually never saw
1: any of that money, John. And what happens now is absolutely insane. You mentioned earlier how he freely moves about the country, going from Minneapolis to Chicago to Fort Worth to St. Louis and then Faking this big scheme in Philadelphia. Well, After he's killed Ben Peitzel and he has cashed in on the insurance claim, Holmes goes back to Peitzel's family and they were in on the scheme. They were told, we're going to fake the death of your father and he's going to go hang out in London. And we're going to get the money and then eventually meet back up with him. So he actually broke Peitzel's family into two groups. One group was the three middle kids, Alice, Nellie, and Howard. And the other group was his wife, their oldest child, and the baby. Those are unnamed. You'll find out more why in a minute, I guess. He actually escorted these two groups along with his own family across the country. He was moving them from place to place and telling each group that the other group was on another side of the country or staying with another relative, when in reality, both groups of the Peitzel family were just a few miles away the entire time. Eventually, and we don't know if this is because Alice or Nellie or Howard got onto him, were on his scheme, and they were trying to turn on him or what, but he ended up killing the three of them. He first killed Howard in a house in Indianapolis. And it said that he poisoned him, dismembered his body and then burned it. Those bones were later found in the fireplace. And then he actually took the rest of the group up to Toronto where he killed Nellie and Alice. Some think he smothered him. Others would say he poisoned them. The story that he gave was that he put him in the trunk of his car And hooked up a hose of some kind and actually gassed them and killed them that way. He buried their bodies in a shallow grave at a rental house in Toronto, and those would later be found as well. John, this is the point of the story where we really start to disappoint our listeners. We're very sorry to do that, but as of right now, the nine murders we just gave you are the only ones that can be attributed to H.H. Holmes. These nine are largely agreed upon. The only bodies that were found were Ben Peitzel and then the three kids, Alice, Nellie, and Howard, unless you consider the bones found in the basement belonging to Pearl. Not 200 murders, nine. Only three of these, Julia Connor and her daughter Pearl and Emmeline Sagrand, were known to have been committed in the so-called murder castle. Now, H.H. Holmes confessed to 27 murders after he was later convicted, and we will get to a little bit about his arrest and trial in a minute, but we can only confirm nine of those. Speaking of this so-called murder castle, we're very sorry to do this to you, especially the two guys I talked to who said this is my favorite story because it's so crazy, The only odd things about the building were a few secret rooms and passageways. In fact, a lot of the secret rooms were not really secret at all. It said that a lot of the business owners on the first floor would use these quote-unquote secret rooms for storage. Folks that worked at the pharmacy would rotate their shifts and nap in some of those. There were some odd passageways. Again, most people that lived there were aware of them. A lot of the secret rooms... That people will talk about were actually just H.H. Holmes putting wallpaper over a doorway to hide some furniture that he had stolen when he moved into the building. He had actually bought a bunch of furniture on credit and he sold it for really cheap, just like he had done the goods John talked about earlier, and he hid some of that furniture away from the creditors by wallpapering over doors. The only really odd things. In this building, John, that were not common knowledge, and even they were to some degree, were two soundproof rooms. I can't think of a good reason when you're creating a building to make
0: a soundproof room. Can you think of a legitimate reason to do so? A legitimate reason? Not off the top of my head. But I know that a lot of people who speculate about the case would say this was a torture chamber where he could do anything he wanted and nobody could ever hear it.
1: You're right. Some people do speculate that it said that he would take the first floor business owners and put them in there one at a time and have them scream and they would just make a game out of, can you scream loud enough for us to hear you? So again, those weren't really secret. It was a weird building. It was oddly constructed, but it was anything but a murder castle. The third floor that was constructed to be a hotel to trap tourists there for World Fair, John, was never used as a hotel. Like I said, he used the hotel so that he had an excuse to take out a loan for furniture that he never paid back. So that was a scam for him to make money. There's no record of people staying there, at least in the hotel capacity. It may have served as an extra apartment for tenants that lived there for years without ever being murdered. But even during the World's Fair, it was never used as a hotel. I mentioned earlier, Chapel had said that there were acid tubs that he would come and retrieve skeletons from. He gave them locations of these acid tubs, but the only things that were found were buckets of oil that he would use for the furnace. There was no acid tub. There was no hanging chute. There were trash chutes, which were in every building in Chicago at this time. There was no maze. There were no gas chambers. There were no dissection room. What was really unfortunate at the time, John, is the media, once all of this broke and they knew that he had killed people and they knew that the building was constructed in kind of an odd way, as it said that the police would find a rope and report that to the media. The newspaper would say, oh, he must be hanging people. They would find a table and be like, ooh, this must have been for dissecting. People just really ran with this story. So I'm very sorry, listeners. H.H. Holmes did not have a murder castle. It was more of a building built by and for a con man who killed a few people as part of his cons. It's also said that he tried to burn it down to kill people in the World's Fair. There was a small fire, but that was for an insurance claim. Another scam. It later had another fire in 1895 after he was already in prison, but the building was restored after that and he had zero
0: involvement. Jamie, I do think... A lot of our listeners who are somewhat familiar with the H.H. H. Holmes or at least know that he had a murder castle, I think they're going to be disappointed to hear that this wasn't really the kind of thing that people think it was. I think we spoke earlier about the the newspaper that was kind of like the New York Times and the Enquirer all mixed in together. I think they were largely to blame for all this hype around this building and and for the murders that were allegedly committed there. But it seems like this was not a torture or murder castle this was basically just a part of many schemes in order for him to get more money he was a business slash con man if anything right yeah john and
1: that's we'll speculate about this more at the end but based on his motivation for killing do we even call him a serial killer and maybe our listeners can be thinking about that as we proceed through the rest of our discussion here
0: Jimmy, there's a lot of research out there that you can check out, but I think one of the most fascinating uh, experts in this field is named Adam Stetzel. He actually gives us a list of 27 other people that Holmes may have killed. Now we have information on all 27 of those people. It would just be crazy to go through each and every one of them, but it's a possibility at least that Holmes had something to do with their deaths. Although, Stetzel would probably say that it's not likely that he did. Why are they even on a list, John? Why were these people part of the discussion of who he may have killed? Well, Jamie, that's a good question. I think back in the time, especially in Chicago, during the time that Holmes was there, if someone disappeared or perhaps even moved away and didn't tell anybody or died in a suspicious way, they would automatically just assume that Holmes was behind their deaths. So there's a few people that disappeared and they said, well, Holmes had to be responsible for this. There were a suicide that took place and they called it suspicious and labeled Holmes as an actual murder in that case. Some of these were actually confessions by Holmes that he had, that he had committed, but there's really no proof to say that he did these things. Jamie, there's another list of names that are just completely debunked. I mean, there's no way that he murdered these people. Jamie, there's another list of people that he couldn't have possibly have killed because they were, in fact, still alive. It's reported that he killed 13 people that were later found to be alive and not at all dead.
1: And he confessed to a lot of those as part of his confessing 27 murders. Several of those people were actually alive. There's a story that one lady showed up at the post office and said, I just want to make one thing clear. I have not been murdered.
0: I would have liked to meet that lady. She sounds a little sassy.
1: Yeah, I think so. And she was definitely alive, if nothing else. So you're right. There's a huge list of people attributed to the Holmes victim list that have been debunked and he never killed or they were never killed. A lot of these people outlived Holmes himself. So once you look at the list of debunked victims and how unlikely it is, the people in the maybe list were actually killed by Holmes, John. It's just not what people think it is. And it's interesting in doing research for this. Adam Setzel's stuff is really good and it's very thorough and he has proof for everything backed up. But I found so many reputable publications that were just filled with these myths as if they were fact. And we're trying to dispel some of those and trying to get real fact out there to our listeners even if it is a little bit disappointing. Another disappointing story is actually the way that he was taken down and you may know that one. It was an insurance scam and I don't know what it is about Chicago criminals, John. You know, Al Capone was brought down for tax fraud and now we have H.H. Holmes brought down for insurance scam and it was the one that he ran with Ben Peitzel. It said that The insurance company, once they paid out for the incident that happened at the patent lab, that they were suspicious, and they started looking into the case. And that's when they stumbled upon Marion Hedgepeth, who was actually a part of the scheme with H.H. Holmes. Holmes had asked him to help him find an attorney with which to file for the insurance claim, and he would give Hedgepeth $500. He never paid up, so Hedgepath turned his back on Holmes and told investigators that Holmes had run this scam. And he gets arrested in Boston in 1894, and he's charged with conspiracy to cheat and defraud Fidelity Mutual Life Insurance. Now he's arrested in Boston, and there's also another charge on his head, John. What was that one, and what choices was he given?
0: Well, Jamie, the other charge was that from Texas, where he was charged with stealing horses and selling them pretty cheap. He was given the choice of, do you want to go to Philadelphia to face the insurance fraud charges, or do you want to go to Texas and face the charges there for stealing the horses? Now, Jamie, we're smart people. Which one of those would you choose?
1: Yeah, in case you're not aware, horse thieving in the late 1800s was punishable by death. And the fraud charges he was facing was probably a two year prison sentence. So that was a pretty easy choice for him to make. So he was sent to Philadelphia to stand trial. And while he was there was when the investigation into the fraud continued to go deeper until they found the bodies of Nellie Alice and Howard Peitzel. And they identified that it was actually Ben Peitzel that had been killed and In October of 1895, that's when H.H. Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. And that's the only murder that he was charged with. And that's all that he was charged with. You're going to read a lot of stuff out there that he was charged with. A lot of murders where he was charged with a lot of different things. This was the trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. There are a lot of good stories out there we don't have time to go into about his attorneys. He had one attorney that was actually okay and went on to become the district attorney. the other one apparently did some crazy things like he objected to his co-counsel, he objected to their own case. he tried to have a person come forth and sign an affidavit saying they had seen Ben Peitzel alive. but that was actually a setup by the district attorney's office to show that the defense attorneys were being shady. so he was called into question for that and he really wasn't attorney for long. After this case, so there's a lot of crazy things around this case It said that the attorneys of H.H. Holmes did not have enough time to prepare, that they actually needed to go out to Toronto and Indianapolis and Chicago and investigate some of the claims that the prosecution was going to bring forth. And while the judge would not postpone the trial for them to do that, they left anyway, and H.H. Holmes actually defended himself for a day as his own attorney before they came back with some more evidence. So crazy trial. He openly confessed to the insurance fraud, but during the trial, he really denied any dealings with this murder. He claimed that there was a Mr. Hatch that was an associate of his that had actually committed all of these murders that had been a part of the scheme. and had kind of gone off on his own, gone vigilante to kill all these people. It's said that that was Holmes' associate, Charles Pace, and it was never substantiated that he was involved in any of these murders. Once the prosecution laid out their case, which, again, this is from the murder of Ben Peitzel, that Holmes happened to be identified as being around Philadelphia around the time of it happening, was really the only evidence tying him to the murder itself, the... Fraud seemed to be circumstantial. So at the time, the defense attorneys and actually a lot of the newspapers thought that H.H. Holmes would be found innocent of this crime. Now, authorities also believe that they could charge him with further murders had he been found innocent on this one and that he would eventually be convicted of murder. But the jury came back immediately,
0: convicted him and sentenced him to death. Jamie, once he knew he was going to be hanged for these crimes, he started confessing, and he ultimately confessed 27 murders. But as we spoke about earlier, many of these people were still alive at <laughs> the time and just couldn't be victims to H.H. Holmes. Jamie, it's reported that he tried to make himself notorious because he really hated mediocrity. So in order to make himself more notorious, he just kind of blew up the picture to something that was completely false. Others started contributing murders to him that weren't actually legit, as we spoke about a minute ago. If anybody went missing in Chicago during this time, it was an easy thing to do to just throw it back on Holmes and make him responsible for the murders or the disappearances. But these were just fabricated and they weren't actually true. Now, it's rumored that he told his lawyer that he killed as many as 133 people And in his confession, he famously said, I was born with the devil in me. But this wasn't true either. This was something that the Philadelphia Inquirer reported and I guess kind of blew out of proportion. I don't think he actually said this to, as part of his confession. On May 7th, 1896, he was actually hanged at Philadelphia County Prison. Jamie, it was said that he was completely calm during this process.
1: Which you got to be sadistic, right, to not care if you're going to your own demise. You would at least, if not fighting against it, be distraught, you would think. The legend of H.H. Holmes grew quickly. Local papers started reporting crazy theories, and then national papers really would run with those stories. And even after some of these crazy stories were debunked locally in Chicago, when they found out that maybe it wasn't a murder castle, the local papers would report that. But the national papers didn't follow up with the retractions of, oh, he didn't actually have a maze, or oh, there were no gas chambers found. So the national stories outside of Chicago showed that this was a murder castle, and that there were potentially hundreds of victims. So quickly, around the country, this legend grew. Holmes loved the hype around his case. He really enjoyed his confession, it seemed. You can find that online to read. It's not a lot of fun. He's not a very good speaker despite being a somewhat successful con man during his life. But despite the evidence, guys, the legend of the murder castle and his hundreds of victims, it's lasted about 130 years, but it's really not true. He killed nine people, possibly a few more. That's not good. Not a good dude. He also swindled a lot of people out of money. Not a good guy. But this legend of H.H. Holmes... And the murder castle is just not accurate. He's also attributed in a lot of places to being the first American serial killer. As it turns out, he's not even the first in Chicago, John. Thomas Neal Cream fits that definition. Which, going back to the definition of a serial killer, we've talked about that before. There's supposed to be multiple victims with a cooling off period. And there used to be an element in the official definition that talked about psychological issues compelling you to commit murder. So we talked about Jack the Ripper last week, and he killed really poor people. There seemed to be nothing to gain except for the joy of killing people. We talked about Donald Harvey, who called himself the Angel of Death, but most of the people he killed he was just mad at or bored and wanted to kill people. John, do you consider H.H. Holmes a serial killer? He did kill people. There was a cooling off period, but it seemed most of these murders were to get money. Does that fit in the definition in your opinion?
0: Jamie, that's a tough question, man, because he did kill multiple people. So some would definitely say that he is a serial killer. But when we look at folks like the Ripper and, and Donald Harvey, the angel of death, like you said, they had some severe mental health issues. And from my perspective, It looks like the murders that we know of were for financial gain. He wasn't a extremely mentally ill psychopath. He was just a money hungry con man who would do whatever it took to get money. So I don't know, man, that's a, maybe a semantics question, but he did kill multiple people. So some would definitely say he is a serial killer, but I don't see the twisted tormented, guy here like i see when we talk about the ripper and harvey and so many other serial killers well we covered
1: billy the kid a few weeks ago he had a similar number of victims that can be confirmed as h.h holmes we never even mentioned the word serial killer about him his kills came in shootouts and gunfights his kills came in the lincoln county wars they were in feuds we talk about soldiers kill high numbers of people None of these people are classified as serial killers. So how does that definition translate when somebody is doing so for financial gain or for survival or for their country or for the psychological piece? I feel like there needs to be more to the definition than multiple victims with cooling off periods. And I don't know where H.H. Holmes fits into that. Even if we do add another piece, I don't think his motivation was ever killing So if that's the piece that we add to say somebody is just motivated to kill, I don't think he was. I think he was motivated to get money and murder happened to be a part of that, which is horrible. But I don't think he's a serial killer.
0: Yeah, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago about Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, I mean, he definitely had that defined cooling off period and his motivation was to kill people. But he didn't gain anything financially from it. It was... He had the need to kill people. He went out, found his victims, stalked them, and then killed them. We don't see that here with this case. We see somebody who is definitely motivated by financial gain. He did kill multiple people, but some would say he's not a serial killer. All right, big question, John. And this is a tricky one,
1: trickier than it sounds. We've talked about our listeners being disappointed here. Are you let down by the fact that the legend of H.H. H. Holmes
0: is not a reality. Jamie, I'm not let down by that. I mean, the less victims we have is the good thing, right? Um, I don't want to come on the air and, and just lightheartedly talk about people losing their life. That's not something that, that I don't think we do on this show. So no, I'm, I'm not disappointed. I think the disappointing part for me is how much of a spin. Many people have taken on this case. I was having breakfast with a guy who knows someone in the media world Uh, who works as a producer for a major news company. And she told him that their motto is, if it bleeds, it leads. So that company makes money on selling their story. And the more gruesome it is, the more likely it's going to sell. And Jamie, I think that's what we're seeing all the way back in the late 1800s with this story. They were putting a spin on it to sell their newspapers. They were making it more intriguing so that it would sell. And I think that's the part that lets me down, is that we have this need to make these elaborate stories up to to sell, to settle some kind of need in ourselves. That's the part that I have a problem with.
1: Yeah, I think some people will be disappointed that the entertainment value of reading about H.H. Holmes is going to be somewhat diminished. And Adam Seltzer has said that he could probably make a lot more money by selling these lies, but he has chosen to go on the record and set a lot of these myths straight about H.H. Holmes. And you should actually read his book. I don't think we've promoted a lot of books about the cases, but it's called H.H. H. Holmes, The True Story of the White City Devil. And it really goes through and dispels these myths, and he cites his sources of how he knows these things are not true. So I encourage you to check that out. One other point I want to make, it came up last week that H.H. Holmes has been identified as a Jack the Ripper suspect. And it's actually one of his great-grandchildren, who is a mudget, which again was his birth name, that has come out and said that he's found diaries from H.H. Holmes where he talks about his trips to London. Now, think about this, John. H.H. Holmes was convicted of murder, and he started singing like a bird. He started claiming he killed all these people that are alive. Don't you think that if he was also a notorious London murderer that he would have said, oh, yeah, I killed a bunch of people in East London a couple years ago as well?
0: Don't you think he would have claimed that if he had any role in other murders? I mean, Jamie, he claimed the lives of those who were still alive. So if he did actually kill those people in London, I would think he would be talking about it. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out that this guy has written a book, and so perhaps that he's making up some of these claims just to get more numbers in his sales. That's a good point, uh, and everybody's got something to sell,
1: I guess. I am thankful for people like Adam Seltzer who do try to get the truth out there, which is also what we try to do here at True Crime Cast. So I hope you still listen to us, even if we ruin the legend of H.H. H. Holmes.
0: Jamie, this has been an interesting case. I really appreciate all your hard work on it. Look forward to the next case we have next week. But until then, guys, please get plugged in on our social media at True Crime Cast on Facebook and Twitter. Shoot us an email at truecrimecast at gmail.com. As we mentioned earlier, please visit our Patreon account. There are so many things that we would like to do and some upgrades we would like to make to our lab. But we're not able to do that on our own. We need your support And it's going to be an interesting and awesome experience for you. If you contribute to that, you're going to get bonus material that only Patreon members have access to. Don't forget to check out the link in our show notes and on our Facebook and Twitter page for the free week trial of HBO. There are so many awesome shows you can watch. There's actually some Ripper material that you can watch on HBO right now. So mosey on over there, check that out, do that while it's still available.
1: Thanks for tuning in once again. We can't wait to bring you another one next week. Until then, this has been True Crime Cast.